0: Welcome back to Science in Between. Here we are. I'm Ollie. And I'm Scott. Uh, and this is episode we had big discussion. this We've landed that this is episode twenty four. yeah, it's it yeah. should be so simple. We should be able to keep track of this. I mean, yeah. we only have there's only the two of us, right? It's not like we have this gigantic team of people working. No. And maybe we should have a team well, we, we, def-
1: we definitely should have a team, right. But um but I think, yeah, I, I mean, it's not it, this is not a high level mathematics. the The numbers no. go up one at a time each. so right. each episode has a number that is one.
0: Uh, digit higher than the previous episode <laughs> right and and I last time was was I made a deal about a big deal about it being a prime number so we should have remembered okay. that right it's not like
1: yeah we should have yeah we should have remembered your dad joke from last
0: time and just wow sorted it out. Mm-hmm. Well, come on you it know is it a dad is. joke you know it is yep I'm a dad and I make jokes that's what we do Yeah. Well, I don't know if we all do, but some of us do. The good dads do, Scott. The good fathers do. (laughs) The ones who really care. (laughs) The ones who really care. So this Um, is, this is our final uh, episode where we talk about uh, the book science in the city um, by Brian Brown. And this is sort of the finale, the grand finale. This is the the conclusion. And I will say that um, when I, when I, tell students when they're doing a presentation or when they're writing a paper, I always say the simplest paper or the simplest presentation to do is to tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then at the end, tell them what you said. And so that's like the simplest way to organize anything. And that's what Brian Brown gives us here in chapter, you know, well, it's just called conclusion. It's not the chapter anything. No, it's not a number here. It's it, just, it would be chapter eight, but he does not name it, it suchly. And so he just here in this last chapter just says, here's what I said. Just, you know, just a. and I would think that if, if somebody out there was just, hey, they found our episodes, you know, our found our podcast out there and was like, oh, should I go back and read all of the other chapters? I would say read the conclusion and this would be a really good start and give you an idea of whether this is something you want to spend some time listening to or, or reading. Um, I think he does this nice little snippets of, of the big ideas that he's trying to promote. And I think that, I mean, the, again, the, the only one that um, I would push back on is the, the one about technology where he's, mm-hmm. you know, sees technology as being, and which is really hard for me to like, go, mm-hmm. you know, I'm taking the, I don't want to say anti-technology side, but mm-hmm. um I, but I think that that's the, the challenge is what he talks. The chapters, the conclusion is titled Theory and Practice. And, and I would say the piece he's missing with this, with the technology piece, is the part that he doesn't name in the title, which is the research and practice, right? It's theory, research, and practice. That's really the whole premise of this book, right? Mm. Is as theory, research, and practice. And he gives us some theory, but he gives us a lot of research. And then he talks about it in practice. But he doesn't do that when he gets to the technology piece. He doesn't. He just talks about it from a theoretical perspective, and then he doesn't have. And he's like, and here's all this potential things that can, you know, bring us. And he does that in the conclusion in this like little, little paragraph. But it's just something that you know, after the discussion last episode, I, I kind of felt like it needed to be restated.
1: Yeah yeah i mean i think i think that also reflects where this book falls in brian's trajectory right so so the stuff that is really grounded in in research and in particular his research because he includes a couple of his studies in detail in this um those are you know in the past um and and in some cases quite a bit in the past um, and this new work that he's doing around technology is very much his sort of present, especially when this book is being written, right? Because if this book was released in 2019, which I believe is when it was released, yep. then um, then he was working on it in you know 2017, uh-huh. um, and so <clears throat> so in 2017, his he was probably just beginning down this path of technology, and so so part of that those last couple of chapters are his sort of trying to look into the future of his current work, um, recognizing that he, I don't think is really a technology person per se up until that point. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, even though, you know, also some of his earlier studies were, were online curriculum and, and were based in online environments because he had control over them and he wanted to be able to do certain things. Right. Um,
0: well, especially when it came to that, this aggregate instruction, right? When he talks yeah. about like breaking apart the, the language and the concept. I mean, that's, that was one of those research studies where, you know, doing that through online means is a, probably the best way of doing that, or at least the the way to isolate a lot of the variables, right? Um, it's a way, maybe not the best way, but it's a really good way of, of, and of an effective way of isolating variables.
1: Yeah. And I think he used it for the, for the generative formative assessment work too. Right. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. And those were the two studies that he really digs into in detail. Um, and yeah, those are, those are older pieces of his work and his, and his doctoral students. Um, so yeah, I mean, I agree with you the the summary's good. It's a good um it gives you a like a 10,000 foot view if you're the person who's trying to decide if this is the book for you. It definitely gives you that and the key points that lay out um, you know, sort of the the Uber argument. Um, you know, we said the and I still say that chapter 6 I think is is in many ways it's the, a, it's the winner. a more robust. Yeah, and it's like a more robust version of that even though it it doesn't, I don't think I I'd have to reread it, I guess, to see whether it certainly doesn't talk about the technology
0: component. Cause that comes after. Right. But, um, which which is surprising because like I think both of our reactions at the beginning parts of chapter six that we talked about this at, that during that episode was that because it's labeled the hero teacher right and yeah. both of us kind of like went into it like going mm, is mm. this going to be that you know we had different perspectives on what that was going to look like you yeah. were like okay is this about the you know that white savior kind of thing Michelle and. Pfeiffer. Right. Yes. Um, but that's not what it was and no. and at all. And that turned out to be, I think, the the high watermark of this whole book. Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I think, yeah, in many respects, the book could have ended there and I would have been happy because it felt like that that really captured the important essence, at least for what I ask people, you know, when I ask my students or teachers I'm working with to read this book, that's why. That chapter is really why I want them to read right. it. I mean, not just that chapter, but that the stuff that falls after this—the strengths and weaknesses chapter—I think we thought was fine. Um, I I don't know that it added tremendously to to the message of the book, but it it does add something. And I guess you know, if if you and I if it was you and I right, and we were to to revise this book, um, I think one of the things we might suggest is that if you're really gonna push on the technology as as a key thing, then thread it through the book, right? Right, In the same way that he sort of builds this argument um, for a kind of teaching that's that's fantastic, like to weave in there to say like, okay, and here in terms of the disaggregated instruction, he explicitly call out like here are ways that technology can support this kind of teaching. And if we're talking about generative formative assessment, let's call that out and say, okay, here's ways that technology can do that. And I do wonder now that I'm saying that out loud, I hadn't really thought through this, but I do wonder to what degree he thought about it that way. Right. As opposed to, you know, the way that a lot of people come to technology, um, solutions is they take the new whiz bang thing right in his case vr slash ar and say oh what can i do with this as opposed to um i have a problem i'm trying to solve which frankly is much more the way that he uses technology in the two studies he describes right where he's like i'm using technology to solve a very specific problem and i so i choose the technology to do that so i choose the tool that does that work the best as opposed to look at this cool tool that I have now, let me go find something to do with it.
0: Well, I think that the important thing for me is what you said about the, when this book was written, if this book was Mm -hmm. released in 2019, it was probably written in 2017 and VR and AR were, were much more promising of a, a technology in terms of what it could do for education. Um, and I, uh, one of the things I, I do in one of my classes, I teach a uh, class on emerging technology and uh, there's this you know, a series of uh, predictions, right? These are, there's a group that does these predictions of the things that are going to make an impact in education. If you look back at some of these, um, you know, from a handful of years ago, there was this promise that VR and AR were going to be these big things in education. And that has mo- largely not happened. Um, and uh, it has not made the impact. Like, like you know, there's so many people who are jumping on board of the, you know, the, uh, Google Cardboards, right? Those were the mm-hmm. the thing, um, but they were, they're, they're not really happening to a large degree. But I wonder if we were able to get, if we were to effort to get Brian Brown on this uh, on this podcast, and we we're to ask him if he were to write this today, if he were to re- revise it today, or discuss it today in the looking at the pandemic, the effects of the pandemic on uh, education how would he reframe some things? Cause I think that, mm-hmm. you know, his whole whole purpose is talking about how we can better um, more effectively teach science in, to marginalized populations. And those populations have been really in a lot of ways crushed by this pandemic. Because, you know, our students who live in urban environments, our kids who are going to urban schools are the ones who are, you know, largely probably not having one-to-one technologies, maybe not have, um, you know, internet access at home. Um, And so what they're getting, what the brand of education they are getting right now is a far cry from the kids in the suburbs, right? And Mm -hmm. so I wonder, you know, because he's a... He's an advocate, and he's um, more than just an advocate for science education and science education in urban environments and with culturally relevant pedagogy. Um, He's challenging how we view, you know, teaching the, you know, he uses the term outsiders, like these kids who we, you know, as science education is, and I, I think what we've done is in a lot of ways made them more of outsiders more of an outsider not just in science education but in education in general right what we've said is that you know because systemically this has been a challenge for students who are not coming not going to school in you know well-to-do in environments right i mean that's so i wonder what he would say with that and maybe that's something we should you know i don't know Email. Yeah, no, I think
1: it's worth, I think, I think that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, they talk a lot about, um, and it isn't just urban, obviously, in this case, another um, uh, significantly impacted community type that we're familiar with where we live is right. rural, right? right. Like the, the, the sort of internet deserts, as they call them, those are, those happen in, in urban places and in, in rural places and less so in suburban places, as you said, because that's where the money gets made. Um, so, um, yeah, that is, um, depressing and, and the, 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 uh, the reports you're referring to, I believe are the Educause horizon reports. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So they come out every year and they are, um, I put, I'll put a link in the show notes, but, um, they're, they, do i agree with you they're they're interesting to go back and look at the ones from the past just to say like oh they yeah, missed so, on that they totally yeah. missed on that like like the one where moocs were gonna transform i don't know if horizon said that or if that was just sort of in the zeitgeist or in general but i think certainly horizon named moocs as a key technology
0: they absolutely did point. they did
1: and um so it is, you know, and and that kind of prognostication is 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 not, I think, a sort of a fool's game. It's very um, difficult uh, to predict what technologies are going to have power in any context. Um, and then there's the old sort of Steve Jobsian quote about like people don't even know what they want. We have to tell them what they want by giving it to them, right? So yeah, um, you know, that's a that's a. restatement of his probably much more eloquently put, but, (laughs) but basically, um, you know, people were, when he was talking about designing technologies, he was saying, you know, people don't know what they want because, because we sort of only know what we know. And so, so it's not so much predicting the future, it's producing the future, at least for Apple. Um, so I think, you know, in some ways, there are analogies here for us in that, you know, we're we're trying to um, produce the future of science teaching. Right. And technology clearly has a role in that. And we that's oh, absolutely what, what the podcast is about. But um, I just think, um, yeah, sorry, we have strayed a little from your original point. But
0: no, 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 I think I, I think there's a lot of good stuff there, because I think that, you know, if you look back at those horizon reports, I think what it does is it shows that you know, we're really bad at predicting what the future is going to hold. And there are things that are in there just, you know, like that, I think maybe they had a better, like, so you go back, like internet of things was one of the ones that they predicted a a handful of years ago, wearable technology. Um, I mean, those are like, I mean, people are wearing technology, you know, like the, the Apple watches and, but it's like, what can we do with that information and how can that like impact teaching? Maybe it can, you know, from a phys ed, you know, or maybe someone's going to find this place, you know, Mm -hmm. find this, you know, Ten years from now and go what was all I thinking wearable technology is awesome you know um but you know i think a lot of those predictions are largely unrealized and um and there's a lot of reasons for that and that might be an episode in itself why why some of those things are un- unrealized um, but i think it's yeah, comes- well, good
1: well i was gonna say you know i mean part of it is this this question about what what's the driver right Um, What should be driving the decision-making and what technologies to use? And, and it goes back to this idea that, and I think Brian does do a powerful job of this, of saying, look, this is about changing the way we think about teaching and changing the way that we think about how students learn. And then technology is the secondary thing. And, and, you know, I think people say that all the time, uh, particularly people who are super excited about technology say that all the time, but but then they don't really believe it. What they really do is they keep moving from technology new technology to new technology because they think the new technology is going to solve the pedagogy problem. Right. They keep thinking like, okay, well, now that we, you know, we have a, you know, we have the new internet, right? Or the new VR or the new whatever, right? Web 2.0, like this is gonna be the thing that finally transforms the pedagogy. Um and it's just a, a fundamental misunderstanding about how teaching and learning work, right? Which is that technology can't be the driver. Um, it, it is a tool set, um, but it cannot be the driver. And, and when we think about it as the driver, that's that's when we get the death march with fun sauce version of what technology does, which is like we're going to we're going to have this thing that kids really think is fun. And, um, but, but the fundamental pedagogy is going to be exactly the same. So they're going to hate the underlying pedagogy just as much. It's just now that, that you'll have this little flavoring of, of technology, which makes it better. And, you know, I think we've talked, again, we've talked about this before, and I think it's, it's a fundamental flaw in the way that quote unquote technologists think about the education space.
0: Well, I'll say this, I'll bring it back to, to Brian Brown and and the things he's saying in the conclusion. I think for me, when I look at the things that have failed, it's the disconnect between what pedagogy looks like for the classroom teacher and what the promise of that technology looks like, right? And so that I think coming back to this, and this is gonna, uh, uh, so he says this on 143, he says, the challenge in the contemporary classroom is who is the person most readily engaged in explaining mm-hmm. scientific phenomenon? And I would broaden that to any you know, concept, not just in science, but in, sure. in social studies and math. And he poses that question, who is that person who's doing it? Who's engaging in these explanations? It's the teacher. And when the technology is offering something that is not in alignment with that, because that's the, you know, current state of pedagogy is that the teacher does the explaining um, that those are the technologies that aren't being supported. Right. I mean, it's still the, you know, and we've, we've talked about this, um, you know, teacher's coach, teacher's facilitator, teacher's, um, and those are things that are, those metaphors are not largely realized. And, and the technologies that support this model of instruction, this model of teacher at the center of explaining, those are the technologies that tend to, you know, Get adopted and that tends to bring it be brought into the classroom. And we've we haven't, you know, talked about the class dojo thing in a while, but you know, yeah. your love, you know, of the class dojo. But I mean, that's why a, a technology like class dojo is adopted and widely used in, in Kahoot and you yeah. know, others. Those are ones that still put the teacher at that central role of of being the conductor rather than the coach. Right.
1: Yeah, and and I will say I sh- I have struggled with this in my own work in the in the work that I do in geoscience ed in collaboration with the Concord group the Concord consortium because one of the things that that is premised on is this idea that we're building these tools and these online curricula f- for students and teachers to have access to and I'm while I think many, much of that is very cool and I think we work very hard at making those curriculum um, as powerful as we can. I, I can't get past every time we do it that there is a fundamental non-responsive nature to the, te- the technology, yeah. right? That it cannot it cannot actually listen to kids, right? And and essentially, if we boil Brian's book down into one thing, it's listen, listen to, to, kids, to kids, right? <laughs> listen to kids right. explain their ideas about science in his case, but listen to kids. And, and technology- right isn't necessarily uh cut out to do that job in many respects now it can facilitate it um but it can't replace it can't do that you know this is like the struggle i've always had with the, with the you know the folks in the learning sciences especially historically who want to just tear schools down and replace them with computers um, and in these interactive simulations or whatever right um and the for me the fundamental insanity of that that I, I've always, you know, pushed back against that. Like that, that is, and I'm not, I'm not making myself out as some sort of leader in this area. I'm just saying that that is a thing that has all, I've always struggled with as a technology and learning sciences person is this idea that the teacher is replaceable with a computer. And it it goes back to, you know, Skinner's idea of like the teaching machine. And it's, it's terrifying to me. For
0: all yeah, I, lo- of I, I love it. We got to put a link to that in, in the show notes. Sk-
1: the Skinner <laughs> article?
0: Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, well, the, the teaching machine, you know, from like mm-hmm. the 50s. I mean, because that's like, you look at that and you go, okay, that's a brand of online teaching that's out there right now that, mm-hmm. you know, schools are paying for, you know, I won't, you know, outline specific curricula that schools are adopting mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but they're adopting these you know online courses from different you know vendors and they're largely these you know, teaching machines from the 1950s with B.F. Skinner, and that's not the thing that it puts the students in a somewhat passive role where there might be clicking on something. But it is—I mean, that's the thing with—I mean, when you look at B.F. Skinner, this, their students are clicking, yeah. <laughs> clicking on something. You know, right. it, it's call and response. It's you know, it's behaviorism at its finest and right. Well,
1: it's, it's this, you know, it's, it's the thing that comes up in technology to describe this, that, that I also always struggle with is this idea of engagement. You said it, right. Which is like, there's a huge range of what it means to be engaged yeah. and, and, to and, and beat and, and what get, gets mixed in there is sort of the difference between entertainment um, which can be engaging, but is, is like cotton candy for the mind. Right. And then deep engagement, which is intellectual and, and, and is what we're talking about. Um, so, so it's this tricky, like there's a, there's a continuum there and technology tends to fall on the cotton candy end most frequently. Right. Which is that the reason it it appeals is it's fun or it's cool or whatever. Um, and, and it, has often then no nutritional value, right? It's yeah. not of any use to the kids that are using it, except that it's fun. Um, so, yeah, I think this idea of like how do we use technology to intellectually engage kids, and you know, again, get them talking about their own ideas, yeah. and there are ways to do that. I mean, obviously, um, I'm not a I'm not Debbie Downer on technology. I think it's amazing. Um, I just think we have to be selective and
0: thoughtful. Yeah. And I think that, you know, framing it from the listen to kids as the uh, that's the big takeaway here and listen to kids dot dot dot. Right. Because it's listen to kids and help them, you know, revise what they're saying. That's the whole generative, you know, formative assessment thing. Help them revise their explanations, um, you know, give them problems where they have to explain the problems that are and especially problems that are meaningful to them and meaningful to their worlds Mm -hmm. and listen to them without judgment right because like the language they may use may not be the language we want them to use but it may be really good stuff Mm -hmm. it may be really good stuff from a science point of view it might not be calling it the right words but it might be representing the concepts pretty authentically and i think that's what we have to you know sort of bracket some of our biases um you know, and that's the thing he starts with this chapter is the the black text and mm-hmm. that goes back yeah. to early in, in the book is that, you know, if if a student comes into our classrooms, not wearing the right clothes, quote unquote, right clothes or what, you know, we or some science teachers expecting to be, you know, what a model science student would look like, um, there's a, a tax that comes with that we're using the language that we would think is again quote unquote appropriate for a science classroom those right. are um that's how we create outsiders that's how you know unknowingly you know or it should be knowingly at this point right at, at this point we, it should be you know
1: yeah we should be aware of the fact that we're actually doing this and that it yeah. That it has consequences and you know like you say the key, the key is listening to kids in their own words right yeah. like that that your job is in part to transition kids across into normative science language but that only happens if they first understand the thing that they're talking about and that's really what brian's saying is listen to them, let them talk through their ideas, and then help them make those ideas more robust and eventually make those ideas more robust and grounded in normative language so that they can understand that there are technical terms for this and those those terms can be useful and, and productive, um, just like any other language can be. So, um, you know, and treating it as a second language is, is what he's arguing for. So yeah, that idea of like, listen to kids in their own words. I mean, you know, again, he he does an uh, an elegant and lovely job of doing that in this book um, and laying out why that's so important.
0: Yeah, so I I, I will say I'm I'm as we look back at the, the book, this is something I'm glad I had the experience of of reading. Uh, I have recommended the book to people who are not science teachers um, and I, I they've all come back to me and said this is I'm glad I read this. Um, because I think that if you're in education, you can find something of value here. If you're working in education in some way, um, whether you're you know teaching science directly or not, there's something you're gonna find valuable here that you're gonna be able to apply to your classroom. Now, maybe not all of it will translate, um, but I think it will open your eyes to different ways of, of doing things in your classroom. And that's the important thing um, yeah. on, on behalf of the students that you work with. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I agree. I don't I don't think they're on 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 a pretty fundamental level. I don't think that there's anything in this that is science specific. I mean, it like you say, there there's a there's some translation that's required depending on your area because there's it, you know, here we go, being esoteric, but a, a little, you know, the epistemic frameworks that define different disciplines require different notions of what what it means to make an argument, what knowledge means, how you produce new knowledge. Um, But that said, all disciplines, that's one of their defining characteristics, is that they are about producing things. And the producing is what you want kids to do. In our case, the production is about explanation, right? It could be production of art, could be production of music, it could be production of new literature or um, whatever. But, But the idea is using the tools for production and and in science, that means production of explanations of of the world.
0: So, Scott, yeah. that was a really good way of framing all of education. That is awesome. That's thanks. Really, uh, really, I, I, I'm just uh, that's going to be something that's going to you know, warm its way into my brain for the next few days. Oh. You know, it's great. Yeah. Well, I think we should end there then. Right. I, I mean, you it makes just, me yeah. feel
1: great. Uh, I know.
0: Well, that's that's kind of like that. my goal here. It's just to make and, you feel well, good.
1: That, and that's my goal too. So I'm glad we're oh, wow.
0: We're on the same page. Look at that. <laughs> no, that's just really a great way of framing what are what we should be doing in in education. Right? Was is you know, in whatever discipline, the students should be producing something, and yeah. and what that something is uh, is different depending on the discipline. And yeah. and what that looks like, and I think that is an awesome way of framing what we do in education. Yeah, thanks. Nice. Okay. Bravo. Bravo, my friend.
1: All right. So so now I know what brings me joy this week, right?
0: Is that Ollie complimented you, or that <laughs> you I'm gonna you put and it have... on the fridge? Oh, right there. Look, gold gold star for Scott McDonald. Ollie oh, gave me a gold star today. Yeah
1: but they're uh, they're hard to come by i'll tell you i'm sure that they are you are you are very recalcitrant in your star giving
0: yeah praise i i withhold praise yeah (laughs) it's a good motivator yeah well you know that works so is that is do you actually have a joy or or is that it
1: i i do have a joy i have yeah so um this this is not a um this maybe this this should be a profound but it's not not a particularly profound one but uh but something that happened to bring me joy this week that i that i that i'm going to share with you all that feels a little uh i don't know i feel like i'm making a lot of excuses for this thing that brought me joy so uh i watched uh or my wife and i and my watched um definitely maybe which is an old film it's from like 2010 it's a film it's a whatever movie it's sure. not uh, probably was not filmed on film, so definitely maybe it is a Ryan Ryan Reynolds sort of uh, P uh, movie. It's a romantic comedy. It's it's the sort of thing that you want to watch. Uh, you know, when when the weather's cold outside and you have like a quiet evening in and you just want So I'm just gonna say it's a really good movie. We we watched some other movies over the p- past couple of weeks that in theory were romantic comedies and were not so great. Sure, um, but. This one, uh, I I recommend it. It's it's got a holiday vibe if you're gonna watch it that time of year, but it doesn't have to be holiday because there's nothing explicitly you know sort of holiday esque about it. But uh, but anyway, so that that's my uh, that's my my joy bringer this week.
0: Well, that's awesome. There's a lot of like great movies to watch right now, and so we could probably yeah. riff on that for a while. Television. I'm, television, yes, mm-hmm. television. Um, but I'm going to go kind of in a different direction. I've been... Um, reading a book with, uh, some colleagues, sort of like another book club. It's, it's just a handful of us. And I, this is going to sound really, you know, you're going to run out and get this book after I read, the, tell you the title. It's called I'm the, ar- I'm, I'm typing it into the right now. It's called the manifesto for teaching online. And I just, you know, I know, I know the manifesto. Mm. Um. It, it's, it, is it an anarchist manifesto or is it? No, no, it's from, um, what do they call them, knowledge leaders at, uh, they're a bunch of- Thought f- leaders? Thought, thought leaders, leaders. That you sure. Know? That's sure. what I was trying to say right there. Um, and these are all um, different scholars from, and where are they from? They're all from a, a college in, sorry, I should be better prepared for this, I apologize. Um, they're from uh, the University of Edinburgh. And so these are folks who work in uh, the Center for Research in Digital Education at the University of Edinburgh. And this is actually the third manifesto they've produced. So they did one um, in, you know, I don't know, 2006, and then another one in 2011. Actually, the first one was published in 2011. They had the idea for this in 2006. They published the first one in 2011. Then they came back and did one in 2016, which were sort of an updated version. And uh, then because of the pandemic, they were like, okay, we need to do this, uh, an updated version of this. And this was something that they kind of, as a group, as a research group, uh, published this. And the idea is that this is not a how-to manual. This is not like, hey, you know, it's not instructional design. Um, This gets at the the larger issues that um, impact online teaching. And it's, this book is written for a university level. They say they encourage uh, people to write something like this for the K to 12 realm, Mm -hmm. but the book is broken up in the five parts, right? And these are the five parts to kind of give you the feel. It's very esoteric. So this is kind of,
1: but just to, sorry, just so we're be clear, because I want to make sure I get it in the show notes too. This is, um, this is from MIT Press. This is yep. the, yeah, okay. Yep, perfect, carry on.
0: Um, so it talks about the political aspects of online teaching. So again, that's not like really from the how-to, hey, and then it's not a list of technologies. That's, that's not going to be found in this book. Um, so it talks about political aspects. Then it talks about the connection between technology and knowledge creation, knowledge authorship and all of that. Um, then talks about how we're recoding education, what that means in terms of uh, open ed and what it means for automation, kind of something you talked about a little bit before, like can teachers be replaced by by robots or by automated systems? Mm-hmm. And they challenge that idea here. Um, then he talks about like this, you know, that the, they talk about the, uh, you know, sort of like this, challenge to face-to-face instruction. Like there's always this constant comparison between face-to-face instruction and online instruction, right? And they mm. sort of break at that. Uh, and, and that in itself is pretty interesting. And then they talk about how online teaching is becoming sort of like this surveillance system where we are promoting distrust for st- of students um, because we feel like online teaching, is, because it's viewed as less than or other, um, that we create these surveillance systems and, you know, plagiarism systems and cheating systems mm. that are trying to, you know, get at that. So, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of reading it with some colleagues and it's really thought provoking stuff because it challenges so many of those things that we hold. Um, you know, we, we, we take, like one of the, they just go at best practices, right? Like the whole concept of best practices or the idea of online teaching as facilitation. They challenge that concept completely. And so they they think that facilitation undermines what we do as online teachers. And so I, I just like the fact that it just pushes the boundaries of, of some of these accepted beliefs and accepted, and I, I just always like that because it makes me circle back and look at something from a different perspective. and. So the manifesto of te- for for teaching online
1: manifesto for for teaching online and that will be in the show notes of course and uh, yeah from MIT Press nice so that so the pre so this is an updated version of the previous so so when you say they've done multiple ones you mean they've done multiple like editions of this yes manifesto.
0: right and I think that's well, the the goal with it is to have it better reflect where they are in time and space. And with technology, and this goes back to the, you know, the, I, mean, I guess we have a theme in this, in that there's some of these, you know, time, you know, time is the theme here because you know, things that might have happened, you know, five years ago, we, we look at, or we'll look at differently because of, you know, the, and that is especially true in, in technology. Yeah, so I think that's probably what has promoted them so much or prompted them so much to, you know, release this new edition. I was recommended by a colleague. They said, hey, you should take a look at this book. I think you'd really get a kick out of it. And so it's, yeah, it's thought provoking, definitely. Nice. Yeah, that's bringing me joy. I'll add it
1: to my reading list. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Awesome. All right. Well, so now, now we, who knows what's next? Cause yeah. we, had, we, had a, we had a master plan for the, for the Brian Brown thing. And now we're out in the wilderness again. Who knows? We are.
0: And we will find, I'm sure with, with all of this in between world that we're still in, I'm sure we'll have uh, some awesome things to talk about next week. And uh, I'm sure that we will episode 25 next week. Yes. Yeah. Not a prime number, not a prime number. Still not uh, in our prime. That, but that one, it, it's, it should be like right up your alley. Cause it, yeah. you know, it's it's a square like you. Yeah. Oh, oh look at what oh. I just did there. Right there. That's what we gotta get out of that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, I have been Scott. And yeah. And this
0: is Ollie. And this has been Science in Between. See you then. See you in between. Oh boy.